Well, Brandon had a chance to introduce his posse. By the way, Brandon, uh, we wish you God's best uh, as your time in ministry here begins. Uh, part of my pa uh, posse is in Naples, another part in Boston, but uh, there is a deputy left of my posse, and that's my wife, Jan, right here in the front. Um, I'm probably in trouble for saying deputy, but uh, co-sheriff, I guess, or whatever. But anyway, it's good to be back here with you folks. Uh, have you ever tried to, uh, in preparation for <clears throat> uh, doing something for the Lord, you felt resistance, you've had resistance? Has that ever happened to you? Well, this, this morning, as, uh, well, actually it began yesterday afternoon as I was working on this, the computer kind of went crazy on me and I had to spend several hours working with that, trying to get it straightened out. And uh, then uh, this morning when I started to uh, leave, I turned the car on the ignition, the ignition on the car and it wouldn't start, but finally got it started. And uh, we live in a condo complex and as I was leaving the condo complex, I was hailed by somebody. Uh, one of the residents had for locked themselves out and they needed a key into the building and I'm one of the trustees, so I had a key, one of the keys to all the buildings, so I had to turn around and go back, get the key and pass that out. And then the worst offense of all was uh, once I got on the road, I got behind a AAA truck uh, going to some place to serve and it was observing the speed limit. <laughs> but I made it. It's good to be with you. There's a lot of different memories that I have here. Um, Earlier I mentioned that this was the sanctuary where Rodney Vernon uh, was, he was the pastor at the time, and I, don't, I was corrected by that. This was not the particular space. But uh, when I was the pastor of the Bethany United Methodist Church in the 1980s, uh, your pastor Rodney Vernon and another Episcopal priest, John Cochran, uh, the three of us uh, held monthly healing services. And so uh, it was uh, good to be a part of that and, and to be a part with, uh, with Rodney. So uh, I have some uh, long-standing connections with you folks, whether we have met or not. Uh, I have some standings with you, and it's good. But uh, you know, there is uh, the scripture passage that was re read this morning talks about uh, it was the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus was entering, as you know, on the donkey. Shouts to, of Hosanna! And uh, in, the, in the midst of the throng, in the midst of the crowd, there were some Greek God-fearers or people who trusted and placed their faith in the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews. And, and they were a part of what was taking place around Jerusalem at that time. And somehow in the midst of all of the throng, they were able to find one of the disciples of Jesus. And they came up to him and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, there are many things that I wish to see still yet in my life. I wish to see the Reds go first, in first place wire to wire next year and uh, sweep the World Series like they did in 1990. I'd like to see the Bengals make it all the way through the season and finally win that Super Bowl. Uh, I wish to see the majestic Rocky Mountains. I've always been drawn to the majesty of, of that location. Uh, I wish to see the new movie, Top Gun, Maverick. I haven't seen it yet. I got thumbs up some, for some people. I wish to see godly leaders raised up in our nation. Amen. I love and I wish to see a revival 
breaking out in America and spreading across to the other nations of the world or the other way around as long as it comes to America also. I wish to witness our children and grandchildren become more like the Greeks who came to that Passover feast in Jerusalem centuries ago with a curiosity and a passion to see Jesus. Whenever I come across this passage in John's Gospel, I'm reminded of these words, we wish to see Jesus. Those words were oftentimes engraved on church pulpits in times past. They were a reminder not for the people, but for the preacher. For these words remind the preacher that the heart of all Christian preaching is to speak of Jesus so that he may be seen, so that he may be understood and encountered afresh. I don't know about you, but life wears me down. So it's good to be reassured each week that the good news of God coming to us in Jesus with his grace and his truth, with his light and his love, with his compassion and his majesty that is true. We need to be reminded it's true. A the, one of the great theologians was once asked, now, why do people come to church? And he said, because they want, to re, they want to know that it's true. They want to be reminded that the gospel, the good news is true. And so we come week by week to re, be reminded and to seek a fresh encounter with this one who is the savior of our souls and the bishop of our souls. So when we look at this passage in John's Gospel, we see that when the streets of Jerusalem's 25,000 people were swelled with 150,000 pilgrims from all around the known world, there were some Greeks that were there in the midst of them, and they found, somehow they found one of Jesus' disciples, Philip, and they appealed to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, if you can't imagine with me what that might have been like for those Greeks, if, if we could be in their shadows and walk around with them for a couple of days or so uh, as this was taking place, they, they must have been amazed. They must have been amazed by the exciting account of a well-known citizen of Jerusalem by the name of Lazarus being brought back to life, life after being dead, embalmed, and entombed for four days. They must have been stirred along with the whole city of Jerusalem when Jesus rode triumphantly into the city on a donkey with the shouts of Hosanna coming from the voices of thousands of religious Jews. They may have been startled to watch Jesus forcefully drive out the corrupt money changers from the sacred temple site. Just who is this Jesus? So though they had seen Jesus like thousands of others had, these Greeks wanted something more. They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted a personal knowledge of him and made the effort to have personal time with him. When we consider the word see, let's just do that for a moment and, and really to see there are two basic meanings of the word see. The most common use of the word see simply refers to vision. It means to look to watch, observe. Three weeks ago, in spite of the fact that I've been told by my optometrist that I have 20-20 vision, I went to the Bureau of Motor Vehicle to get my license renewed, and uh, I had to take this, this vision test. I was, I'd forgotten about that, actually. But uh, 
Why do they make all the letters on line number five so small? Why do they do that? I couldn't see them all, and so I initially failed my vision test. I couldn't see all of those letters clearly, I, but I, eventually I did. I did get my, uh, I did pass. Only cost 20 bucks, but uh, no, I, I, did, I did eventually pass. So that's one, that's the most common use of the word see. But the New Testament word that we have in our passage has a very different meaning. It means to be aware, to know, to perceive, to understand fully. And this type of seeing requires a personal relationship. In fact, if you were to ask an ancient Jew how to understand God, they would tell you that it's not done merely by studying about him or listening to what others have learned or even attending religious services. Rather, to really understand Jesus, <clears throat> you must make the effort to stand under Jesus in a personal relationship. You have got to come near and see him. For example, when John the Baptist introduced two of his followers to Jesus as the Lamb of God, the scripture tells us that these two followers turned around and started following Jesus. And when they asked where he was staying, Jesus replied, come and you will see. And so they went and they spent that day, that whole day with Jesus. Do you suppose they came to really see Jesus in a different way? After the religious leader Nicodemus had seen and heard Jesus, he wanted something more. So he came in the night to see him. We wish to see Jesus. The writer to the Hebrew Christians encourages our efforts when he wrote, anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So this morning, like a coin with two sides, there are two sides of seeing that I want to mention. The first comes from the studies of Reverend Dr. Michael Slaughter, who researched several major spiritual renewals which took place in a variety of cultures and a variety of eras of time, and he found that there were certain key elements in every one of those renewals. And this first side of seeing reflects one of those elements. And that is, we make the effort to see Jesus for ourselves. Past renewals clearly show that our life has changed when we move from a vague faith in God to a focused personal faith in the person of Jesus. Now, I believe it's an indictment to the church and also a tragedy whenever a church person has to refer to God as the man upstairs or a higher power, the first cause or the force. There's no personal faith relationship with, with anything that vague. It would be like trying to hug a hologram. Now, a vague faith in God can be a good beginning on a journey of faith, but many treat it as an end-all thinking that choosing just to get on the path is all that is needed to know the fullness of a path well-traveled to its wondrous destiny. But my friends, be aware of this. To make Jesus the focus of our faith is by the very nature of being focused, being exclusive to all other competing voices and claims, creating conflict 
with the insistence of a fallen society to be politically correct, tolerant, broad-minded, progressive, in a number of good terms which I think have been misused. In some of my reading of preparations for this, I came across an unusual group, never heard of a group like this, never imagined a group like this. It's called the Society for Recovering Doormats. <laughs> I think I'd like to enroll in that just to see what it's like. And it's for people suffering for, from addiction to people-pleasing, people who have low self-esteem, and for those who are afraid to assert themselves. But even the Society for Recovering Doormats have made this statement, unconditional love does not mean unconditional tolerance. Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of the United States, would instruct us that those who stand for nothing will fall for everything. Isaiah, speaking in God's behalf, said, before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior an exclusive claim that brings us into conflict with our fallen society. Now, it's been suggested to me that I may have something of a narrow faith. But you know, I refuse that label. I do not believe I have a narrow faith. Because to me, narrow means that I've not done reasonable due diligence of research. That I have an uninformed bias an uninformed prejudice, that I have an unexamined, entrenched view. That to me is narrow, and I refuse that label. Rather, I believe that I have a focused faith. A focused faith is only possible after reasonable due diligence of credible evidence and research where it eliminates what is not measured up, what has not stood the test of time, so as to give ourselves to that which has been confirmed as being authentic. That, to me, is a focused faith. Some of you may have heard of Josh McDowell. As a young man, he considered himself an agnostic and that Christianity was worthless. However, when he was challenged to intellectually examine the claims of Christianity, Josh discovered compelling, overwhelming evidence for the reliability of the Christian faith. He wrote, When I became a Christian, it was a step into the light rather than a leap into the darkness. If I had exercised blind faith, I would have rejected Jesus Christ and turned my back on all the evidence. What I did was investigate the evidence. The results showed that Christ must be who he claimed to be, and I had to make a decision. The New Testament church had a focused faith in Jesus as the core of God's plan for our salvation. And that focused faith on Jesus changed the world, transformed the world, one soul at a time. Jesus, as we look at some of the scriptures and some of the teachings of the New Testament church and some of what Jesus said about himself, this is what we discovered. Jesus said, you study the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures in particular, and later new, but you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you will find that you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Peter said, therefore let all be assured of this. Be confident of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
Again, Peter said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mankind by which we must be saved. Paul said what I think is perhaps the most radical statement in all of Scripture. Listen to what Paul says. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God made all of his fullness to dwell in Jesus. I don't know of anything that could be more profoundly radical than that. Jesus said again in another place, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Paul said when he when on his missionary journey, he came to a church, and, and the church at Corinth, and he, and he wrote, and he said, when I came to you, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The focus of the early church was radically fa- placed on the person of Jesus as the core and the heart of God's plan for salvation. When we look at some of the uh, historical evidence of uh, some of the early church leaders and what happened in their lives, we find that Jesus was again the focus of their faith. Augustine, who is considered considered by many as the most important leader in the early church, was, was once an extreme pagan. And folks, I mean an extreme pagan. And he was converted. It wasn't until he was 32 that he came to a place of faith in Christ. And then he became one of the, he became one of the most prominent church leaders in the early church. And he wrote this. He said, life is found in putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Martin Luther, after reading the book of Romans, found that salvation is not found in our ties to a church, nor in our religious observance, uh, observance of religious traditions, not even established by our good works, but rather he said, salvation comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. Wesley had quite a story. Um, evidently, he was feeling pretty good about his ministry and decided he would try his hand at ministry over in that uh, old rugged colony, over in that new world, over in America. And so he went to a place called Georgia as a missionary. It was a disaster. It could not have gone worse. And on his return trip to England, defeated and discouraged, uh, there were a group of Moravians who were people of a, of a faith that had a personal focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And it was really, it was a, it was really a godsend. <clears throat> but on that return trip to England, the ship was overwhelmed by such a fierce storm that they all feared that the ship would break apart and sink and they would all perish. And Wesley, reflecting on that, wrote this. Being in imminent danger of death and very uneasy on that account, I was strongly convinced that the cause of that uneasiness was unbelief and that the gaining of a true living faith was the one thing needful for me. But still, I fixed not this faith on the right object. I knew only faith in God, not faith in Christ. So that when Peter Bowler, whom God prepared for me, affirmed a true faith in Christ, I was quite amazed and looked upon it as a new gospel. John Wesley, 
a grandson's, a, a pastor's grandson, a pastor's son, a pastor himself, who traveled as a missionary, moved from a vague faith in God to a clear focus on Jesus Christ. And when he did, he felt his heart strangely warmed. You see, before this time, Wesley's trust was in a religion, but now it was in a relationship. We more fully understand Jesus, perceive who he is, understand and I'm aware of more of who he is when we make the effort to see him for ourselves. The second side of seeing is when we experience Jesus seeing us. Some of you may have uh, seen the award-winning movie Avatar. It depicts the Navi tribe of humanoids who live on the moon Pandora. The movie is known for its amazing special effects, but it was the simple yet profoundly authentic way that they greeted one another that affected me. I still remember the first time I saw the daughter meeting her father, and they met, with, met one another. And the way they greeted one another really moved me. I remember that more than anything else in the movie. The way they greeted one another affected me. And instead of saying, hi, hello, what's up, what's new, how's it going, they would come before one another and pause long enough to look into each other's eyes and say, I see you. I see you. I understand who you truly are, in spite at times even of appearance or behavior. I see you. It's, that's more than just being aware of someone. It's caring enough to make the effort to see their worth as a person created in the image of God. It's caring enough to look to see where they are in the battles and the blessings of life. Recently, uh, Jan and I had the opportunity to be down in Branson, Missouri. And we were inspired by the presentation of the life of Jesus at that world-class theater called the Sight and Sound Theater. In the closing scene, after the portrayal of the life, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, Jesus is now off stage. It's the closing scene. And several of the characters were reflecting on how first meeting Jesus had it started changing their lives. And frankly, folks, it was that scene that was the inspiration and the spark for this message. Peter responded by saying something like, while I was at work mending my nets, he saw me. He understood. Mary Magdalene, while I was being confronted for my sin, he saw me. He saw who I really am. Thomas, while I was questioning the testimonies of others, he saw me. He saw my confusion, my hope, my desire to believe, my struggle to believe. He understood all the parts of my life that made that an issue. He saw me. Myself, when I was 20 years old, without any helpful understanding of Jesus, he saw me. He saw me. If I may take a moment and just have kind of personal reflections here in your presence. It was April the 4th, 19, well actually in high school I was, I kind of viewed life 
as a high school student, and I tried to figure it out. And all I saw was that you're born, you grow up, you go to school, you graduate, you get a job, you get married, you have a family, you grow old, and you die. I thought, is that it? I don't want to sign up for this. I was not raised in a church. Wonderful family, wonderful parents. But I was not given any spiritual training or foundation. But I began to pray what I knew of the Lord's Prayer. I'm not even sure I even knew all of it or knew it correctly, but I began to pray. And Jesus saw me. And he came to me in a dream vision. A little bit later, I was uh, at a group where people were talking about coming to faith in Christ, how they met him and things like this. And I thought that's really interesting, but, but I was not really moved until my heart began to be tugged. Have you ever heard that? You know that, that phrase, that meaning? Have you ever experienced your heart? There's a tugging on your heart. And I knew instinctively I'd come to a place in my life where I had to either accept or reject Jesus, one or the other accept or reject, no longer just trying to be a good old guy and hope it would be okay, reject him or accept him. And I mustered up what courage I had in that small group and I prayed and I just prayed, dear God, would you please come into my life and take away my emptiness? And that began a spiritual revolution, April the 4th, 1970, Saturday night, in the chancel of the Wright Memorial United Methodist Church in Newark, Ohio. He saw me. Just as an illustration, now back to my notes, just as an illustration of being seen, when was the last time you made the effort to really see someone? To become aware of the sacredness of who they are, to care enough to understand just where they are in the battles and the benefits of life. Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us how Jesus did this on a regular basis. Matthew says, seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them. Now, obviously, that's, not more, that's a lot more than just visual sight. He saw the people and he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He saw. Years ago, I happened to see a prominent member of our church waiting in the return line at Myers. <clears throat> I had the time, so I walked over and said, Jenny, how are you? And Jenny looked up at me with a pleasant smile. She said, I'm fine. For some reason, I was prompted to ask her, Jenny, how are you really? Her smile faded, her head lowered. She began to tell of the heartbreaking problems that were being caused by her 24-year-old son who was bipolar. In his compassion, Jesus saw a man shackled by demonic power, probably from no doing of his own, but he was, he was trapped, he was shackled by this demonic power, and Jesus saw him and he spoke a word of deliverance with divine authority and, and broke through the distress that was keeping him from becoming the man that God created him to be. 
In his compassion, Jesus saw a man who was brought to him by the efforts of friends, and he forgave the man's paralyzing sins and broke through the distress that was keeping him from becoming the man God created him to be. In his compassion, Jesus saw a woman long suffering with a chronic health problem and reached out to her with healing touch and broke through the distress that was keeping her from becoming the woman that God created her to be. In his compassion, Jesus saw this 20-year-old fellow who in spite of some modest successes and benefits felt a nagging emptiness and Jesus reached out in a dream vision and broke through the distress that was keeping me from becoming the man God created me to be. In his compassion, Jesus saw Sharon Fawcett, a dedicated Christian woman, wife, and mother who had battled depression for nine years, going in and out of institutions and going through a variety of treatments. Then one day, Sharon heard Jesus whisper, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I will bring you back from captivity. And so Sharon sought him by studying his word, by listening to his voice, by praying. And then about three months later, Jesus broke through the distress that was keeping her from becoming the woman that God created her to be. Whatever the barrier, whatever the distress, whatever the time that's dispiriting, whatever it may be for us, it's good to know the truth found in the old praise chords. It is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he can do for you. In his compassion, Jesus sees us. The Bible tells us that there were some Greeks who wished to see Jesus, to see the Lamb of God, to understand him, to stand under him. If you wish to see Jesus, you can do as those Greeks did and make the effort to see Jesus for yourself. Shortly after my conversion, again, no foundation. I, I was afraid this thing wouldn't work, it wouldn't last, this new life in Christ. And I remember one day while I was at college, it was at my locker rooms. I still see it in my mind today. I was going through my locker rooms, my locker, and I remember seeing, Lord, it doesn't do me any good how good you could be for Billy Graham. That's the only, Christian, that's the only name I knew in the Christian faith. It doesn't do me any good to know how good, real you can be for Billy Graham. So I'm determined to find out. So then I said, so you might as well help me. And he did. If you wish to see Jesus, you can always do as those Greeks did and make the effort to see Jesus for yourself. If you wish to have Jesus see you in his compassion, you can always come to him with, with what you understand of him, what, with what measure of faith you have in him, as did the man suffering from leprosy, or the man shackled by demonic power, or the man bound by sin, or the woman with a chronic disease, or the woman dispirited from depression. So let me ask this morning, for what do you wish? For what do you really wish? Let's pray. Open our eyes, Lord, 
We want to see Jesus, to reach out and touch him and say that we love him. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to listen. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. And all the people of God said, Amen. And now let us lift our eyes to the Lamb who is worthy of all of our efforts to see him.